0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1400. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, my Away carry-on is everything I look for in a suitcase. It's lightweight, strong. It's got a really smooth glide through the airport. It's got a built-in combination lock, a compression system for overpackers like me, and a laundry bag to boot. Get $20 off a suitcase when you go to awaytravel.com slash woods and use promo code woods during checkout. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Alex Merced is with us once again today. Alex is vice chair of the Libertarian Party. He previously appeared on the show alongside Gene Epstein because he and Gene together have quite a bit of knowledge about the financial sector. And that's one subject where I think a lot of people have plenty of questions because there's a lot of lingo that's thrown around where it's just assumed everybody knows it. And it just seems confusing and opaque to a lot of people. So I brought them on and I just threw a lot of listener-supplied questions at them. And I think they cleared up a lot of misconceptions misunderstandings and just help people understand the financial sector better well today we want to talk about the libertarian party itself and once again i'm going to be drawing on some questions submitted by folks in the supporting listeners group the tom Woods show elite you can be part of that via supportinglisteners.com alex welcome back
1: Hey, Tom, thank you for having me back. So excited.
0: All right, let's talk Libertarian Party. I solicited some questions from the Supporting Listeners group, supportinglisteners.com, the Tom Wood Show elite group. But before we get into some of those, I just I think it'd be a good idea to start off with your own background with the Libertarian Party. You are the vice chair, and I'm curious to know about your history with the party, how you got involved, and what made you decide to run for vice chair. I mean, just give me a little bit of that background.
1: Gotcha, like- Basically, I became libertarian with the Ron Paul movement in and 2008, But after that, I wasn't I didn't get directly involved with the Libertarian Party. I kinda actually kind of dove deep into really like a Seasteading Institute and stuff like that. It wasn't until 2013 actually Roger Stone intervened in the convention of the the New York City Libertarian Party and actually ended up they actually had to throw out the convention, so they had no candidates. So all the candidates ended up getting shaken up, and they didn't have any candidate for New York City public advocate, which is like the vice mayor of New York City. So the mayoral candidate by the name of Michael Sanchez was a fan of my YouTube videos that I've been doing over the years. So he reached out to me and said, hey, can we run you for public advocate? Actually, now that I think about it, the day that he asked me to do that was actually the first day I met you, because that was actually at Liberty Fest in New York City in 2013. You, were, you had a table at the event, and that's actually where I met Michael, and he asked me to be the public advocate candidate. Um, oh,
0: okay. I didn't know any of this. Okay.
1: Yeah, no, this actually just came together right now in my head. I never really realized that until just now. But basically, that – he asked me to be the candidate, and I, they got me on the ballot, and I was like, okay, I'm going to run. And I ended up getting the highest vote total that year of any of the Libertarian Party candidates. I ended up getting 10,000 votes, which was double the next highest uh, strictly Libertarian Party vote total, 5,000 for the citywide candidates. And so that – and I made really good relationships with the rest of the people in the New York City Party, so I became really involved. And then in 2016, I ran against Chuck Schumer, and that kind of got me more involved with the state party – and then in tw- at the end of 2017, uh, Johnny Adams from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad and Larry Sharp both asked me to run for vice chair of the National Party because of all the stuff that was kind of going on at the time. And uh, after both of them asking me, I was kind of hard to say no. So December 1st, 2017, I announced my candidacy for vice chair of the Libertarian Party and I traveled the country, became more involved with the national scene of the party. And then uh, last July, I became vice chair of the, the Libertarian Party.
0: Well, that is quite a story, and I want to make sure everybody knows, everybody who's listening knows kind of what you're known for. And I would say what you're known for most – in fact, before I say that, what would you most like to be known for in the Libertarian Party? And let's see if it matches up with my answer.
1: I think what most people know me for is as the nice guy of the Libertarian Party. I generally am a very nice guy, but I generally got my start more – Intellectual. Like, I just became really interested in Austrian economics and then more economics more broadly afterwards. And I spent pretty much all of 2008 to, to today making videos on economics and philosophy. Like, literally, every time I read a book, anytime I learned something, I'd make a video about it. So there's over 2,000 videos on YouTube and thousands of podcast episodes all over of me just talking about what I learned. But I've always kind of been someone who tries to reconcile and understand other people's ideas. So people always looked at me like as a sort of welcoming and inclusive figure. Am I hearing a
0: chirping bird in the background?
1: Yeah, I apologize for that. My <laughs> cocktail just flew into the room.
0: <laughs> you don't have to apologize. I just It's just so funny, the things I hear in the background with guests. <laughs> all right. So are you a non-aggression principle, self-ownership kind of guy?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely say that I come at it from all angles. So I definitely believe in the whole idea of self-ownership and non-aggression, those sort of Principles really ring true to me, and I think they're very important to instill and, and encourage people to adopt. But I also very much appreciate sort of the the utility of liberty and the benefits it has on a broad scale and on an individual scale.
0: Does the vice chair – I know the chair would not intervene in – I guess in the same way in a, in the Republicans and the Democrats – the chair does not intervene in the primary to say, I endorse so-and-so. So that would be the same thing for you in the Libertarian Party, I assume, right? Yeah. Okay.
1: I don't plan on endorsing in the Libertarian Party. I'm actually – so far, all the candidates that have announced, I'm fairly good friends with all of them, and I'm very excited that they're all involved. And uh, I encourage more people to get involved. I we want as many voices to get out there, and, for the dele- and I encourage all delegates to get to know them. And if you're not a person who's involved with the party, if you want to influence who gets chosen, become a member, become a delegate. That's how it works.
0: What do you say to people who have a philosophical opposition to the state that they think leads them to the conclusion that they can't participate in a political party, they can't vote because that's giving their consent to the system?
1: I would say that the Libertarian Party does a lot more than just politics. I always say that the Libertarian Party has four things that it really does for the liberty movement. There is the political side to it where we get involved in elections, ballot initiatives, uh, lobbying legislators to move policy in a more libertarian direction, but that's only a small piece. There's also the education side where, you know, campaigns do form a great way of connecting people to libertarian ideas, but also there's the community within the libertarian party. And the community, with, like I go to libertarian party events, people are carpooling, people are taking care of each other's kids. We are literally building that sort of voluntarist world within the party. It doesn't have to necessarily be a nation to be the example. That, that example of a libertarian world is the community within the party, a place where we aren't looking to force each other into anything. We all work with each other. We work through our challenges. We, we try to innovate our way through our challenges. And uh, that's, a, I think, one of the strongest arguments for libertarianism in general, when the people see that this community of people working with each other, knowing each other, caring about each other. So I'm always very big on building that community within the LP. And then four, I think advocating for liberty. And one of the reasons why I focus a lot on emotional intelligence is a lot of times people hold back on – like – logical arguments are great and I love logical arguments but you have to be open to listening to them and oftentimes people's brains are closed off to the bad because of the things that have happened to them in the past the people who've spurned them the wounds they have from life so part of it is the healing process because if you if you help build people up so they can trust people again they'll be open up to those ideas again and then they can start hearing those logical arguments and really embracing a lot of our ideas uh, uh, more wholeheartedly and that community helps in that kind of healing when people get involved with the party. So I think the all these aspects are things that being involved with the party. So even if you don't vote, even if you don't uh, like politics, being involved with the party gets you involved in a community that's a great example of libertarianism in action.
0: Now, that's a very interesting way to answer. And in, in a way, it's kind of an Alex Merced way to answer because I would have immediately gone at the philosophical roots of the objection. And I would have said, now you're wrong to think that voting or whatever is uh, some kind of consent to the system, and I would have cited Lysander Spooner on my side, whatever. And your view is more, well, maybe I won't change their minds on that, but I'll tell them that there's more to the Libertarian Party than that. And there are some parts you don't want to be part of then don't do that, but there are a lot of, well, that's an interesting interesting kind of answer. Well, let me ask you something that came out of the keynote talk I gave this weekend when I saw you at the Libertarian Party convention in Florida, the uh, the state convention there. The topic came up, or at least I brought it up at some point, about Running a candidate for president. I mean, naturally, if you're going to have a political party, it seems only natural you would run a presidential candidate. But there have been some people who have thought that the presidential election sucks all the resources and the energy and the attention of the party away from more winnable local races. And so some people have wondered if maybe. In some cases, it might be a mistake even to field a candidate for president. And there's a certain plausibility to that until you realize, and this was the other point I made, that it's precisely the presidential campaign that generates a lot of interest and fundraising activity and all this energy that you need for the rest of the party, for the party to function. And so if you were to give up the presidential candidacy – then you would become almost invisible and that would be a problem. So what do you think is the right and wrong of all that?
1: I totally agree that the, the presidential election has its own momentum that it builds within itself. And a lot of the people who donate to any candidate, because you hear this with every candidate about every other candidate, that if everyone just focused on my campaign, on my particular local campaign or my local Senate, my Senate campaign, and I've been there, I was a Senate candidate. I was the public advocate candidate. I was a comptroller candidate in New York City. And you get, you become very passionate about your campaign and about what you can possibly do. And you think, well, if everyone just got behind me, we would change the world. and, and theoretically that could be that could be true and you want candidates to feel that way because you want them as passionate about what they're doing as possible but it's People are going to donate where they're going to donate. And if people want to donate to the presidential candidate or to a Senate candidate, it's because that's where their heart is. We can't just sit there and say, well, if we don't run a presidential candidate, suddenly that person won't donate, which is going to donate elsewhere. It's not. It's kind of like people who think, well, if Gary Johnson didn't win, all those votes would have gone to Hillary or Trump. You're, it's not an, a given that the person would have done something absent of an option. So that's the wrong way. I'm when people sit there and say exactly that, like, go focus on local, that's sort of the wrong approach. If anything, all candidates need to focus on building new donors, new voters, and that's how we grow, not by fighting over the pool that we have, but by looking at growing it, and that Really, where the community involvement comes in, and where that's something that, again, whether you believe in voting or not, everyone can get involved in in going to you know creating a local neighborhood barbecue and getting building relationships within the community. Um, because those relationships, they may not necessarily hey say hey we need to go abolish public schools tomorrow, but hey once you become friends with them, had a nice burger, they're going to be much more receptive to those ideas because now they like you. So that's something every candidate, every liberty movement person can be doing, getting involved in the community, and that's going to grow. The fundraising. That's going to grow the votes. That's going to grow and all other. But at the same time, we need the media that the presidential election brings because that's going to be our highest media moment every four years.
0: Right, right, right. Well, let's talk about 2020, but we'll speak generally, not talking about any particular candidates at the moment. But I've been a bit pessimistic about the prospects for the Libertarian Party in 2020 simply because not not because of anything peculiar to the libertarian party but because i think any third party is going to run into a problem and it's a it's a problem that really it's a perennial problem and i don't just mean the i don't want to throw my vote away argument or stuff like that but it's more that every four years we get told this is the most important election of our lifetimes. It's almost a running joke at this point. Uh-huh. Every four years, it'll, be, and then four years from now, it'll that'll be the most important election of our lifetimes. And so there's always an excuse why I can't afford to vote for the Libertarian Party, because this is the most important election of our lifetimes. But in this case, they'll say, all right, look, I, I know we've cried wolf before, but this time it really may be the most important election of our lifetimes because the Supreme Court does have the potential to do a lot of harm, or to prevent a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. And if we can just get a lock on non-activist judges on the court, that'll do a lot of good, and voting for the Libertarian Party will undermine that process. So how do you recommend that the party respond to that or cope in 2020?
1: That is a high-stakes election, not just the Supreme Court, but I mean it's a census year. So a lot of those governor races and whatnot are going to have a huge impact on politics over the next decade. So it is a, a high-stakes election. But my focus is growth. And if 2018 was another year where basically polarization really had people focusing on, well, I need to go vote against the person I'm more scared of. And that's, a bad, that's always a bad environment if you're an emerging party, because people aren't looking for an alternative. They're looking to prevent something they think is worse. But in 2018, we still ran more candidates than we had in previous election cycles. We still got, in many of those races, saw growth in the number of votes that they got. Now, some of the percentages dropped because it was a high turnout election, and high turnouts aren't great for emerging parties. But we saw growth in votes. We grew our ballot access. We got ballot access in New York, which we've never had before. Uh, Larry Sharp did an amazing job. Huge vote growth. And that's what matters. Are we, are we gaining yards? Because... Over the last forty years, I know people want to see us become, you know, as big as the Republicans and Democrats overnight. But when the Republicans and Democrats started, they didn't have to deal with the ballot access laws that we're dealing with. Mm. They didn't have to deal with the kind of media entrenchment that we're dealing with right now. And despite all of that, we are still the third largest part of the United States. And we are still growing. Our membership numbers are are growing. Our fundraising numbers are growing. We have challenges. And you know, if you're expecting us to be at the top in twenty twenty, you know, maybe that's not necessarily the right metric, but if you're looking at 2018, how in 2018, despite there being a lot less attention for emerging parties, we still did better than we did in 2016 um, by a lot of metrics. Even our convention revenue was better, in, I think, just about better than 2016, So that, which is pretty impressive. So the fact that we're still growing despite kind of things going away from sort of a, that emerging party friendly 2016, that's a good trend that we're still growing. And as long as that trend holds, I'm happy.
0: Let me ask a question that combines the questions of two people from the supporting listeners group. Uh Um, One – I'm just going to read his question. He says, it would be nice to get an inside perspective on how political parties work, what goes on in them, what is his function, et cetera, which is to say that for many of us, political parties are like the banking system to the average Joe or even the above average educated libertarian, not very accessible. So just what are the basic – the nuts and bolts of it. And then somebody else wants to know about the budget, the party budget. How does the fiscally responsible party handle budgetary issues internally? Now, I have, I know nothing about that. So, for all I know, that's a really hot question, or it could also be a really boring question. I don't know.
1: It's interesting. I mean, the, basically, what a political party is, it's just an, an organizational apparatus to do X. In this case, for the Libertarian Party, to do libertarian stuff within the political realm, which is not the only realm of doing libertarian stuff. I mean, I'm very big on all the cultural stuff, like the music of backwards and, and also all the innovative stuff. But the Libertarian Party creates an organization that allows us to use economies of scale in politics. I mean, people can run individually as a... As an independent per se and still be a libertarian the problem is they don't get the benefit of the networks that a political party has of the relationships that a party has built that's sort of the benefit of especially when you're talking about national politics where you really need a lot of those things kind of built up ahead of time because you don't have enough time to build them up yourself in an election cycle especially nationally so the libertarian party is trying to build an apparatus the networks the media relationships uh the the organization to actually have libertarian ideas be able to function on an effectively in a national cycle without constantly having to bash heads against an establishment because in the Libertarian Party, even the establishment is still pretty darn libertarian. Unlike, you know, you go into one of the other parties, you really are like a lone voice fighting against a large force. We're trying to make sure that there is a large force that is libertarian. Now, as far as budgeting goes, basically the way it works is once a year we have a budgetary meeting here at the LNC. The last year was my first one, and it's been in the last couple, I guess the last couple years, we had deficit budgets and there was a, a concerted effort this year to go back to being you know very strict balanced budgets you know and uh, we had a high revenue last year like last year was one of our better years or one of the best years really but we also spent a lot of money we 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 spent money on a lot of new staff which was very beneficial i mean in one race in wyoming we came 50 votes short of unseating the state senate majority leader in wyoming uh, 50 votes. Like they actually called the race in favor of Bethany Baldez, so a Libertarian would have unseated the Senate Majority Leader in that state. But at the last minute, they found 500 votes, and that switched it, flipped sides. But still, that would just being that close is an yeah. amazing feat. And that was because we invested in having some people going in there and help the organization of or the party and kind of practice some of that traditional retail door knocking and whatnot. So we've seen we've seen a return on those investments, and we want to make those investments on a greater scale, but. Showing those small examples hopefully will inspire people to say, hey, you know what, if I get my $25 membership from the Libertarian Party, hey, the money's actually being used for something. We have the CRM project where we're actually creating a much easier tool for state parties to be able to share data so that way every election is not like everyone's starting from scratch. As it has been in the past, collecting data, collecting the same emails over again, you'll have you know some sort of continuity. We're trying to just make those basic infrastructure investments that actually have a huge return, and uh, that's what we do. That's mainly what we do at national level. So there's a national budget, which is fairly not the most exciting thing in the world. It's really you know, do we pay the building's mortgage? Do we invest in these projects? And um, you know that's pretty much the deal national. And every state has their own budget. Some states have much bigger budgets than other states. And, um, you know, there's a very, having gone to a lot of state conventions, there's a very huge disparity between sort of the most organized states and the least organized states. So there's a lot of room to grow. There's really, if people want to get involved right now, there's a lot of room to actually get involved and have huge impact because of the size that we're at right now. So we're having impact on a national scale despite our size because we innovate. Because since we're not doled down by all the sort of entrenched leaders and whatnot and old traditions people can try out new things try out new technologies people can experiment i like to think of the libertarian party as a clearinghouse for libertarian activism where people can try different things and it's like a free market where good ideas rise to the top and people try some things that don't work and it disappears but at least you're free to do so unlike other parties where they really control how candidates run they really control who says what and basically they keep trying the same things over and over again here you get Some experimentation, and I like that, and I think that's part of the reason why we have grown more than other emerging parties because we have – basically internally we are a free market of activism in the same way we believe in free markets in the economy.
0: This one looks kind of interesting. Uh, The gentleman is asking, I'd like to hear about successes of elected libertarians. I hear a lot about them running, a little about them winning, but not very much about what they actually do in office. Do you have any anecdotes you can share?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, last year, Jeffrey Hewitt in California, he won. He's now our highest level elected libertarian. He won a seat on the Riverside County Board of Supervisors. And Riverside County is like as big as a few. I think it's actually bigger than a few states as far as population goes and before that he was the mayor of Calamesa, California. And he went in there and actually renegotiated the pension system because basically the California pension system is a fiscal disaster and he actually went in there and actually was able to opt out and basically took on the unions head on and succeeded and won and basically drastically reformed the pensions and retirement system for Calamesa into a much more a much more fiscally sound System in a sense, so he actually took a problem that existed and fixed it, and he did it by basically reaching across the island over the years, building relationships within his community. Like he is a libertarian through and through, and he actually did our State of the Union address this year. But um, I mean, I would definitely go take a look at Jeffrey Hugh as one of the best examples. But also, a lot of the California libertarians have done some cool stuff. Like um, there's a couple in Northern California. That not as elected libertarians, but there was a, a tax increase going on in their community, and by doing the research, by strong advocacy, they actually prevented it from happening. So there are people who are actually making real changes, and there's real results from again not just elections and candidates, but from activism. Uh, we help out with you have libertarian parties helping out with ballot initiatives to you know decriminalize drugs or or basically end prohibition at all levels and fight taxes. So again, that activism can take many forms, and there's actual results. There's actually things we can point to. Now, would I like there to be more? Sure, but it's growing, and that's that's what matters.
0: Let me now share a passage from David Friedman that I was not familiar with until this very moment, but maybe you've heard. Mm-hmm. And it had to do with the Libertarian Party. It just goes to show David Friedman's been around a long time. I think this is for, from 1973. So I'm going to read this to you. It says, When I say that a party wishes something, I am again employing a convenient abbreviation. Consider a small ideological party, such as the Libertarian Party. Initially – actually, by the way, I'm not sure that the quotation is from 1973. It could be a reference to – it doesn't matter. It's from a long time ago. It says, consider a small ideological party, such as the Libertarian Party. Initially, all it has to offer to potential workers, officers, or candidates is the opportunity to achieve their ideological objectives. As long as that is true, its members, officers, and candidates continue to be the people whose main objective is ideological, and the party continues to believe in libertarianism. Suppose the party begins to win elections. It occurs to some people that positions of power within the party may, in the long run, be worth quite a lot of money. Some of the people to whom this occurs may be non-ideological and willing to proclaim any ideology they find convenient. Others may be vaguely libertarian, but with a greater commitment to their short-run private objectives than to their long-run public ones. What these people have in common is their willingness to make a profession of gaining power within the party— In the long run, in the struggle for power, professionals will beat amateurs. It is as certain as anything can be in politics that once a party achieves substantial political power, it will eventually swing towards a policy in which ideology is a means, perhaps an important means, but not an end. It will become a vote and income-maximizing party, taking positions dictated by its ideology when that seems the best way of getting votes, or the volunteer labor and money it requires in order to get votes, and taking actions inconsistent with its ideology when such actions yield the party a net profit in votes or dollars. We already have two parties like that. I see no advantage to having a third. Now, I don't think that's a good description of what's going on in the Libertarian Party at this moment. But if it were to become super successful the way he's positing here,
1: how do you prevent that? I've had this question before, and generally my feeling is this. This is what happens to all successful institutions over time. As institutions get successful, they grow, they become stale, they become stagnant, and eventually they die. That's why you want free markets. Um, because, you know, businesses that were great and innovative in the past become old and stale in the future. Who knows? Maybe back in the day, Democrats and Republicans were much more edgy and cool than they are now. But now they're old and stale, and they need to die. And the Libertarian Party right now is growing. It is you know, very strong in its principles, very strong in its ideology, and maybe in the future, as it grows and succeeds and does some work towards that ideology, it becomes big and stale. And at that some point, it'll it'll need to die, and new parties will need to come. I I don't expect institutions to be gold forever. Like it's like you know the outsiders, nothing stays gold, pony boy. Um, but at this point, it's gold and getting golder. And I, that's in this moment, it's the vehicle for what. I want to see in the world. Will it always be that? I don't know, but I never expect any institution to always be that.
0: All right, let's take a quick break. Last time I was in New York, I saw Alex and took him to what some of you know is my favorite play of all time, The Play That Goes Wrong. Now, again, for you longtime listeners, what is the indispensable item you know I brought with me when I went up to New York? Answer, my away carry-on, because that thing makes me the king of the airport. Now, I've told you about the features of this thing. The four 360-degree spinner wheels make it glide so beautifully. It's got a beautiful compression system inside, so you can really pack a whole lot in there. You've got a TSA-approved combination lock built into the top. But then I also mentioned that it's made with premium German polycarbonate, which is unrivaled in strength and impact resistance. Well, the other day, I can't tell you what it was because I can't guarantee that you'll have the same results I did. But let's just say— I accidentally did something extremely traumatic to my Away carry-on. And then in my horror, when I went to go look at it, doggone it, the thing still works after I just put it through the ringer. Free shipping on any Away order within the lower 48 states. And for $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com woods and use promo code woods during checkout. That's $20 off a suitcase when you visit awaytravel.com woods and use promo code woods during checkout. Now, let's, um, let's move from these fun little questions to, you know, something a little bit more controversial. Uh, first, well, I guess, yeah, let's, let's, first, let's, do, let's do Tom Mullen's question. And I, I probably shouldn't be using people's names, but <laughs> I know Tom won't care. He says, the leadership gets a lot of blame for the Johnson slash Weld nomination, especially Weld. But they were nominated by a majority of the members. Does Alex believe Johnson and Weld represent the views of a majority of the membership? If not, what are his thoughts on why they were nominated? And does he foresee candidates who more closely resemble the party platform being nominated going forward? Why or why not?
1: Oftentimes in politics, I don't think people always vote for the person who represents their their views the most. I mean I generally do. But I think a lot of times people look for a balance among different things. Who represents views that I generally agree with, but then also checks off other boxes to accomplish what I hope to be accomplished. So it's not just the the what, but the who, the what, the where, the why. And at the end result, Gary Johnson crossed off more boxes for more people than any of the candidates. Welds a little bit more closely, so I mean it was only a few votes shy of having a Larry Sharp vice presidency, which. You know, it was what it was, but at the end of the day, it is the delegates who make the choice. And generally the officers are fairly hands off in the process. We don't get to decide whether someone runs or doesn't run. I've been running into that controversy this weekend after we, we, with some new candidates who appeared. But you know, what we do is we just facilitate the process. We're just trying to make sure that the convention, that there is an institution that that's rules are being adhered to, that allows people who care enough to be involved to be able to make that decision. But I, wouldn't say, I would say that w- what the people decide at the national convention is generally a sum of a lot of different values, uh, not just purely does this person – is this the the person on the stage who represents my values the best because also people care about the result of that action and whatnot. I mean, I generally am someone who probably does vote for the person who really just kind of represents my views the most. Um, that's why I enthusiastically voted for Rumpel in 2008 and 2012. And um, – Generally, still vote pretty much libertarian in most elections because that's just where my heart is. But at the end of the day, if you're voting as a delegate in the Libertarian Party convention, your heart is already much more away from establishment thinking than people who are already operating in generally in the Republican and Democrat Party. So you're already a couple steps removed. Maybe not as removed as other members, but it is what it is. People make people, I don't think the process is bad. It's like any electoral process, it ends up having a median result. But if you want to have the most impact, I think you can really have that strong libertarian voice by getting involved and making it more libertarian.
0: All right, a couple more things I want to ask you. One of them is hypothetical, but not entirely, I suppose. Let's suppose you have an election, maybe it's a governor's race or whatever, um, in which there are two people running and one of them You don't know. Nobody knows what they're going to do when they get in power. But let's say what the person is running on seems like it's 75 to 80 percent in line with what we believe. And if a libertarian candidate jumps into that race, it is almost certain to turn that election over to somebody who is 5 percent with us. Can you ever imagine being in a situation where even privately and quietly and without fanfare, you would advise against any libertarian candidate entering that election in a case like that?
1: I generally won't interfere in the decision of someone to run personally. I just I, – and I mean there's been actual situations like this that have, have come up over the last year since I've become vice chair and, and in, in my running for vice chair where there were races where people were concerned. It's like, hey, we have this really almost – Good Republican, Um, but I don't think either way it's bad. I mean, like when I when you win, if you have someone who's by and large libertarian, great if they win. If someone if they lose because of an emerging party vote, there's two like the whole spoiler effect. I mean, there's two takeaways from that. Oftentimes, when you have that effect, it then it's a signal to organizations that hey, we're not appealing enough to this audience, and we need to and. If you're too quick to give your vote away, then people won't cater to what you have to say as much. So that's one issue. But also at the end of the day, if the Libertarian Party is growing, there's going to be – we're not going to go from not having any effect to winning. It's not going to be like a a jump. We're going to be a spoiler first. That's like in the step of growing, you're going to be that – you're going to have a consequential chunk of the vote. And uh, doing that is part of our growth, and if we don't do that – We're not going to get to the eventual winning part. So you know, we're going to impact, and there's going to be people on the left who hate us for it, and there's going to be people on the right who hate us for it. And I I really don't have a problem with that.
0: All right. Finally, I'm curious about the different caucuses within the Libertarian Party and what their role is. And in particular, you know I have a a vested interest in the so-called Mises Caucus. I was at their event kind of in tandem with the convention uh, in uh, 2018 in New
1: Orleans. Good times.
0: Yeah, a good times, and and some really outstanding, energetic young folks involved in that in that caucus. I my understanding is you're not a formal member of any of these caucuses, but you're you know you have some sympathies here and there. What can you tell us about that?
1: I try to be as friendly with all the caucuses, or just really the entire membership as possible. The reason being is that there are going to be times where there's going to be conflicts between people in the party and different groups within the party. And I need people to feel comfortable coming up to me and saying, hey, I have this issue. Can you you help me out with this? So if I come out too strong and saying, I like this group and I don't like this group, then what happens, it becomes harder where some people won't feel comfortable talking to me. So I generally don't get involved too much with the caucuses but the role of a caucus within a political party is is just a is a it's an informal group of people who want to influence the direction of the party and i think the fact that they we've been growing the number of caucuses within the party is as another sign of its growth because if you had a party of 10 people, there would be no reason no to have caucuses. a caucus. right, <laughs> right. Yeah, so as an organization gets bigger, you need those small groups because a larger political party isn't going to be as good at representing purely what you believe. So you need those small groups where we can say, hey, this is what we believe, this is what we want to do, let's organize towards that. And that's good because it allows, and I do think that they, they kind of find a great equilibrium between each other because each of them keep pushing sort of, Their goal, so you have the Mises Caucus, which is trying to really push that sort of heavy heavy property rights, heavy Misesian, Austrian economics focus on policy and the Fed, all that good stuff. You have the Pragmatist Caucus, which is focused on sort of practical, traditional politicking. So. You have people who are anarchists and people who are uh, classical liberals in the pragmatist caucus, but they all kind of want door knocking and very traditional sort of politicking. Then you have the audacious caucus, which is kind of the polar opposite. Their goal is sort of to dismantle respectability politics by sort of being as audacious and not respectable as possible. Which I think, well, sometimes you know, people have uh, they they like to push people's buttons, but that's kind of what they're trying to do. They're which I think there's an element, a necessity of that to some element in politics, because, or at least from a libertarian perspective, in the sense that in a libertarian world, we want everyone to participate in markets. And in the same way, we want everyone's voice to be part of the discussion, I mean, ideally through consumerism, but also through just being people hearing people. So the more you start kind of pushing on the edges, the more people who might be heard. Although, again… People have very different views on different tactics that the Issues Caucus has used. There's also the Radical Caucus, which focuses on making sure the party sticks really to its platform, to its core principles, and its founding, which is uh, generally a very uh, anarcho-capitalist uh, heavy group. And um, what, I'm trying to think, what other caucuses are there? Those are the sort of the main or the larger caucuses. There's also an Individualist Caucus, a Unity Caucus, but these are more smaller groups that are more not as large as the four that I mentioned before.
0: I guess my own approach is rather different from the audacious caucus. I give the external appearance of respectability, and I'm wearing a suit and, you know, reasonably well put together and all that. But then beneath all that, I'm this crazy radical. So I lull people in with a false sense of security. Well, this seems like a, you know, reasonable guy. Ah, Yeah. Yeah. Well, wait till you hear me start talking.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's generally my approach as well. So I, I totally, I totally empathize with that.
0: All right, so people can find out more about the Libertarian Party, of course, at lp.org. But how can they follow Alex Merced?
1: Ooh, I have a – I mean always there's always alexmerced.com where you can find my my books, my merchandise, my podcasts, all sorts of really cool stuff and anything that I'm involved in. But one thing I ask – I really like everyone to do is follow me on Twitter, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and subscribe to at least one of my podcasts. Just go into your favorite podcast catcher, uh, put in Alex Merced, and you'll find information on that. And if you want, like one of my Facebook pages. But alexmerced.com is really sort of the home of what I do. Uh, the other URL I think people should remember is libertarian101.com. It's a really handy, quick URL you can give to anybody with just the basics, core way of easing people into libertarianism. It's a, I think it's it's a very principled message, but I think I, I, I set up a couple of videos that are sort of very – what's the word I'm looking for? Accessible. So those are those would be the places I would look. The podcasts, alexmerced.com, libertarian All com.
0: All right. That's a lot to remember. So I'll put all that stuff up at tomwoods.com slash fourteen hundred. Now that's easy to remember. 1400 on the nose. Uh, you can get all those Alex Merced resources uh, sitting there waiting for you. Or well, I appreciate you coming on, answering some questions. I I think you're a a real force for good in the party. I love that you make the effort to listen to everybody's perspective and try to get along with everybody. I think that's extremely admirable. Somebody's got to do that. And I think you're doing an outstanding job. And I'm I'm glad to have... uh, you know, supported you. And I'm, I'm glad you, you were elected. And man, are you energetic. You're just, a, you're flying all over the country and you still maintain this positive outlook. And at no time do you say, doggone it, I'm stuck in some blankety blank airport, whatever. <laughs> you know, that's not Alex Merced style. And uh, that's terrific. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And always a wonderful time to, to talk with you, Tom.
0: All right, folks, a quick announcement. June twenty sixth of this year, twenty nineteen, we'll be premiering our housing bubble documentary in New York City. We'll be having the New York City premiere on June twenty sixth. It's already made the rounds here and there, but one of the biggies will be New York City. And so far, the feedback is just out of this world, great. The screening will be followed by an expert panel consisting of Gene Epstein, the great Gene Epstein, formerly of Barons for many years, Jim Grant, and you know Jim Grant is amazing. Grant's interest rate observer is a highly sought-after financial newsletter. Then David Tice of Prudent Bear and of course, Peter Schiff. All these folks will be joining us for commentary afterward. So please keep your ears peeled. Sign up for my newsletter. You'll be sure to get notified that way. You can sign up. You'll see a way to sign up at the top of TomWoods.com. You can get uh, my Bernie Sanders ebook if you like, at BernieIsWrong.com. That'll also get you on my email list. But if you live in the New York area, I think this will be an enjoyable night out for you. And I will, of course, be there in person as part of this event as well. So looking forward to that, and I'll see you. Let's see, what are we going to talk about tomorrow? 1401. What the heck was 1401? Oh, Gene Epstein himself. That's right. Gene Epstein is coming back, and we're going to talk about Bhaskar Sankara's new book, The Socialist Manifesto. So that is definitely not to be missed. So make sure and subscribe over at tomwoods.com slash iTunes, and we'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.